Welcome to Catalogs and Noise. My name is Joe. Today I'm going to be talking about Chester Brown's, I think, comic masterpiece, Louis Riel. So to start off, by the way, I feel very good that it is pronounced Louis Riel. I did a little research, but I should have known in the first place because there's an old Billy Childish song that I heard, I don't know, 25 years ago that uh, is about Louis Riel, called Louis Riel, done to the Kingsman Louis Louis kind of song kind of uh, music, and I loved it, and I just haven't thought about it in so long that uh, I didn't put it all together, but it is clearly, clearly Louis Riel. So, this book is uh, kind of a revelation to me. I think it was magnificent. I tried to read this a couple times, although this is the first time I've, I've succeeded. Um, well, I don't know if I tried to read it. I've, I've picked it up and paged through it. It's been sitting on my shelf for years now. And I guess, I don't know, it just, uh, I had the wrong impression of it. It seemed stiff to me. It seemed like something that was not, you know, a page turner like Ed or like paying for it or something like this. But um, once I, I really committed to it, it is amazing. It has all kinds of interesting things to say, which I hope I'm going to do justice to today. So, um, First off, the I wanted to talk about just sequencing of these podcasts. Uh, I know that I should probably be doing Underwater next if I was going purely by chronological order. But there's a couple of reasons why I chose to maybe put that on the back burner. So number one is that I can't get the whole thing. It's hard. I can get most of the volumes from Jordan Quarterly. But the, the last two don't seem to be exist or in print, so I'm still working on that. Hopefully I can get them in time. I don't really care about that, though. I could probably work around that. More importantly, I, I got the impression just by reading some uh, interviews with Brown that he feels it's unfinished. And I think that's why it doesn't have its own publication, like most of the other stuff from Yummy Fur, even though it's been almost 20 years now. And, um, I, yeah, and he, he indicates that he might actually go back to it. But, um, yeah, because of this kind of uh, asterisk nature of the text, I'm going to treat it in the wrap-up uh, at the end of these podcasts. So we'll get to it eventually. I just wanted to um, indicate that, you know, between the Yummy Fur years and Louis Riel, there are, you know, these, these four or five missing years uh, of Brown, and it seems to be, you know, work spent on that sci-fi situation there. So, um, yeah, we'll get to it. We always do. All right, so one more kind of like caveat before we begin. I know next to nothing about Canadian history. Uh, that That's not bragging. That is uh, shameful, <laughs> I think. Um you know, but but we just don't get that in American schools. It's just not part of <laughs> the curriculum. And like most other nations' histories, the specifics of them are not. I got the impression, just doing some very cursory research, that Louis Riel is somebody that is known in Canadian history. Like every school child probably has gotten the legend of him or the, the facts of him, however you want to put it. There does seem to be some gray area between those two conceptions of the man. And that it is, um, you know, fairly well known, but uh, I think largely unknown outside of, you know, just uh, Canadian um, history books. 
that's a, a shame because this is a very, very complex, interesting character that I think, um, you know, parallels a lot of the the most challenging and interesting characters in American history or any other national history, um, you know, particularly because of the underdog status and the particular politics of the time. So I just enjoyed reading this book for nothing more than it was a gateway into this whole world of information that I was not um, privy to before. I mean, you know, I like this is why I like world cinema, right? Because you can, you know, get into these these points of view that I never dreamed existed. You know, every every country has its own kind of art scene that gets largely ignored, which is uh, which is terrible. I don't think I'm saying anything radical here. All right, moving on. So um, the book is sections off in four parts, and I'm going to try and take each part and discuss it separately. But there are certain themes that I thought were prominent and interesting and connect this work to Brown's catalog overall. I saw four distinctive ones. I think some of these are similar in nature to other, to, to other works. One is new, I think. Um, so first off, we have the kind of anti-government or anti-authoritarian kind of sentiments of the underdog, right? There. There's um, a kind of rejection of bureaucracies, you know. You get some of these kind of Kafka-esque scenes of bureaucrats trying to get over on the revolutionaries, trying to, to, you know, show their muscle or talk around situations um, that Rael particularly wants to compromise and work through. So you get this kind of big government versus little guy libertarianism that I think... um, is going to become more prominent in the uh, remaining text by Brown. Another, I guess along with that, is this kind of general sense of identity. When you break down the two kind of the sides that are at odds here, it, it took me a while to kind of parse all this out because there's so many identity markers on each side and it's so complex. So you have like, you know, basic geography issues of the divide between the French Quebec and the the rest of Canada with its more English language settlement, um, but you have this town which is the um, you know, the Red River area, which holds this kind of um, hybrid of all of these Canadian personalities in what I'm imagining is closer quarters than most of the other representative provinces in Canada. So you end up with these French slash native Canadian Catholics that speak French living alongside the Canadians, the the nationalist Canadians that are more aligned with uh, British um, English speakers and seem to be more Protestant in nature. And those are kind of our teams. But in each one of those categories, there seem to be all these complications that I thought was interesting. So the book for me a lot um, very much was about the idea of how these identity markers kind of create a sense of community, a sense of cohesion. And I, I don't know, I, I think ultimately it, it seems pretty silly. You know, these people have more in common than they do, <laughs> not in common. 
you know, they live in the same area, they farm the same land, they, they go to the same institutions or buy into the same institutions for the same part, for the most part. And, you know, like anything else, it seems that identity could be as much as a trap as it is a, a great marker of selfhood and identity. Speaking of identity, another big issue that we saw starting to emerge in um, the last discussion of The Little Man was mental illness and how that kind of works out. So we, we talked about um, My Mother Was a Schizophrenic, which is Brown's portrait of his mother and his kind of anti-psychiatry sentiments. And this seems to be linked to the man himself, Louis Riel, who I think it's arguable was schizophrenic or what we would now call schizophrenic. Um, I think the, uh, we get a diagnosis of him as, a, as megalomania, which I don't think really fits, but I think that's kind of Brown's point. Brown, as we talked about last week, is somebody that would deny the name schizophrenic or deny deny it as something that was abnormal or something that needed treatment. We talked about some of my, my slight problems with that, or not my problems with that, but problems with, with um, that being, that justifying labeling all of psychology problematic. Anyway, it strikes me that some of his interest in Rael may have come from his personal experience with his mother's schizophrenia and... That's interesting to me. I, I thought about this book as, at first, as one of the, um, as the first book that is not particularly about Brown or doesn't have a kind of Brown surrogate in it of the major works. I'm surely there's shorts that don't have that. But by the end, I was kind of rethinking that and thinking that this could be as personal as any of those books, even though it is autobiography, which is, um, you know, a different genre approach altogether, you know, as opposed to fiction, which I think implicitly, if not explicitly, lays out the kind of mentality or mindset of the the author. Nonfiction, or in this case, biography, seeks to seeks truth rather than artistry. I'll get a little more into the particulars of that later, but I don't know that that's the case, you know. Um, Brown's choosing of this and his treatment of it, I think, are sympathetic, uh, very sympathetic to to the um, intricacies of, you know, Rael's kind of otherness of his, you know, what I think most people will call religious delusions. So I think that's that's interesting. I, I think if nothing else, his mother has shaped the portrayal in uh, very significant ways. All right, one more theme that I saw was, this is a, I think this is new to Brown, but it's, um, it's interesting and it's more subtle than those other themes. It's something like human communications in terms of compromise and logic and law systems and bureaucracy as kind of one aspect versus chance, versus the worst um, impulses in bureaucracies to not follow through, to cheat, to create conspiracy or corruption. And I'm putting that in a category with chance. There seems to be several incidents in this book where you get a situation where everybody 
seems to be doing things the right way where you can you can kind of make this potentially terrible situation work but you know something uh, the hands of the gods throw a monkey wrench into the situation and you end up with catastrophe so i don't know it's subtle but i think that's something in there that he's working with and uh and i think it's a very interesting maybe for me the most interesting aspect of this book I'll get more specific into those things as I go through the specifics of the text. First, though, there were a couple other general things I wanted to discuss, one of which is the, uh, the style of this book. So there's a lot written about um, the influences on Louis Riel particularly. So Brown is, is pretty much firm that this is Harold Gray's Little Orphan Annie. That, that is the kind of central substance of the artistic style of it. I don't know Little Orphan Annie at all, except for, you know, the, uh, the movie from the early 80s, um, which I probably saw when I was a child. But um, the, there's an essay on the, uh, the back of the, uh, the 10th anniversary edition of Louis Riel, which is the one I'm using, um, which is uh, absolutely amazing in terms of its, its um, comprehensive nature. There's so much great stuff is the back at the uh, the back of it after the text proper, but um, in it there's an essay by uh, by it seems to be a, a comic critic named uh, Sean Rogers, who talks about how it's not just the kind of um, physical style of of Little Orphan Annie that Brown is is being influenced by, but it has there's something about the um, the dialectic nature of it. He claims that Little Orphan Annie is, is fraught with these political dialectics. Again, I'm not sure. Who knows? I know that there's, you know, certainly class issues embedded in it. Um, but I don't know how that plays out or where that goes. But I, I like that idea. In, in terms of influence, that didn't jump to mind reading that. That was an afterthought I saw later. When I was reading it, I saw all over the place uh, Tintin. Uh, Herge, Herge, Herge. I'm not really sure you say that Belgian comics um, name. I don't think I've never had to say it out loud. I've read all the Tintin books and actually love Tintin. Um, well, I love it as it gets more mature. Actually, I think it's just fine early on. But I saw. I thought that the artistry was very, very similar to that. Particularly the action sequences, the um, sequences in Louis where we get the actual kind of war scenes. I, I just I thought that was so so Tintin. And also this kind of like general stiffness in the characters. I'm not trying to say that as a criticism. I actually think that is like a stylistic stroke that works. There's this, um, I don't know, uh, just sense of, of orderliness. And yeah, I don't know the other word, stiffness, that um, I've always thought was strange in Tintin. And I think that is being used here for the best reasons, Um in Brown, I'll talk about those reasons in a little while, but there was one other influence that I didn't really hear people talking about. I actually think that maybe Rogers mentions it in his essay, but I'm going to pat myself on the back for coming to it first uh, before I read that anyway. Um, and that's R. Crumb. R. Crumb is all over this thing, I think. Uh, just as a, bio as a comic biographer, you know, the idea that he is doing um, those old blues biographies, um, like uh, Blind Lemon Johnson, I believe it is, and uh, Robert Johnson and all those guys. 
there's a sense of that. What can a comic do in terms of articulating uh, biography, which is which is strange when you think about it, right? Um, the, the visual medium seems to automatically lend itself to imagination. Biography, in a lot of ways, if done, I guess, quote-unquote, stiffly, properly, is a, is a mouthpiece for historians that are trying to get to the essence of truth. So I think Crumb did it first, and um, uh, I love those Crumb biographies. Crumb's one of my favorites. But I got to think that that is hugely, hugely influential on um, what Brown is doing here. So the, all right, let's, let's go to the idea of why those characters are so stiff and real. So I think part of it is that that is Brown's attempt to get at that kind of historicism, this sense that we are going to be objective and unemotional, uh, the whole plot. And most of the characterization, not all, but most of it, is told with a very almost scientific distance. You see all these characters at, at arm's length. I don't think there's any what we would call close-ups. Again, I always put this stuff in cinematic terms because it's easier for me. But there doesn't seem to be any like, like tight shots of faces, emoting. Everything is in either you know long shot or medium shot in terms of uh, the action. So you get this just distant sense of history in a way. It's, um, I think it's his attempt to be unbiased. Not that I think he is completely unbiased. I think that stylistically his and storytelling, I think we can assume that he's very much sympathetic or more so sympathetic with the Matisse. Matisse, I hope I'm saying that correctly. The, um, the French, Native Canadian um, ethnic groups that uh, Louis Riel is the leader of, on and off. And I think that his story does maybe paint sympathetic pictures of them at times. But um, that's not to say that this is without its, its um, attempts at historicism. I think it does. And I think it's that kind of stilted stiff sense of characters and interactions that does that. There, there seems to be, I don't know, just a kind of matter-of-factness. I think that's probably the best way I want to put it, that, that, that elevates this to, you know, true biography. Um, I mean, but it's really trying to get at the nature of truth, right? It's trying to, to take away or, or lessen the the embellishments, you know, um, of, of, of what fiction does. I mean, you think of Ed and all its fantastic nature, um, all its, its quirkiness. I think this is a way to, to rid his kind of natural tendencies of that. Not to say that there is no fantastic qualities in this. There are. And when those fantastic things strike, they are so strange compared to the kind of even-keeled representation of the historical facts. I'm not sure if the mic's picking up, but there is crinkling in the background. That is Penny the dog playing with Crinkle Bear. So that's what that is, if anybody can hear it. Um, I'm, I'm glad to have Penny, Penny the dog with me. She's the only one that showed up for uh, Louis Rail. So... Um, 
I don't want to overstate that I think this is hugely different from other Brown books that we've talked about, though, in terms of this kind of objective quality. I tried to articulate, particularly in the Playboy, but but very but also very much in I Never Liked You and somewhat in Ed the Happy Clown. This Brown's characters generally do have this kind of um, distanced quality. I always thought that was mostly because of Brown's personality. You know, the idea that he was um, he was somebody that that was introverted, somebody that like was uncomfortable um, relating himself or or being emotive. Um, and I thought that was natural to him. And so the depictions of his characters, therefore come through and they're kind of true to his his natural personality. Seeing Louis Riel and seeing this, you know, different subject treated the same way speaks to, I think, the idea that that's true, though, you know, that is an expression of his personality when depicting himself as a youth, but also that that personality has kind of bled into his artist, artistic vision, which I think is interesting um, Overall, I'm always interested in, in, you know, where artistic impulses come from. And Louis stands as a, an interesting counterpoint to those biographical ideas, and, and they stand up together. Um, you know, I, I, I keep going back to this idea of in the Playboy where you get basically one page of the news that his mother has died with very little emotion. Um, and in I Never Liked You where he actually... The character Chester goes to his room and tries to cry over it. He Brown is always somebody that I think is contending with his emotional state, uh, seeing it come through stylistic uh, in a more pure stylistic medium. Here is very telling overall. Um, all right, couple more things. I wanted to talk about how the page and panels are set up here. I made the point in. I never liked you, that he was kind of evolving into this sense of using pages distinctively from each other in order to tell, you know, almost little vignettes that are separated from other vignettes. And he was using page composition in very smart, innovative ways. Louis seems to be the opposite stylistically, and it gets a different effect, which I think is incredible. So for I never liked, I remember, uh, Playboy literally had one or two panels per page. I Never Liked You had as many panels as it took to tell that kind of vignette in full. Louis Rael reverts almost back to this very, very strict six-panel setup. Every, every page has six panels organized in the same manner. It is, it, it, it's, it's militaristically kind of um, organized, which I think is interesting. Now, that would be, well, let me put it, I don't know that that would be that interesting if it wasn't for the way the story is told, though. So the pages essentially mean nothing in terms of organizing plots or any kind of, kind of a sequence of events. So the fourth panel could start a new sequence. The first panel could start a new sequence. The last one could. It's very much like he is just telling the story nonstop throughout. There's a, you know, these strike me as almost like um, like frames of a movie reel that, you know, that are are just so perfectly lined up sequentially. Um, Pages really mean nothing here. And I was wondering why that is the case. Like, why would you do this? Um, 
I think that speaks kind of going back to the objective unemotional quality. It speaks to a kind of historicism as well, uh, a kind, a way to maybe try to capture truth, right? A way to say that if I'm going to be honest, then I, I need to do these things in order as it comes natural to be true to the history being told. You know, that if you were going to play these things in more um, specific ways in terms of page, that it might be too much artifice. You might lose some of the reliability or authenticity of the telling. That's my two cents on that. Um, I actually, I was put off by it at first, and that might be one of the reasons why I, I, it took me a while to get to this book, that it just, it just felt stiff in my hand. But the, but I think um, seeing the reason behind behind it actually elevates the book and makes it makes it so smart. Uh, one other thing, uh, probably not one, a couple more. <laughs> one thing that uh, struck me is I love Brown's treatment of language in this book. So he has to contend with the notion of foreign languages in this, and I think he does it brilliantly. I mean, I don't think he's the first person to use the kind of pointed brackets in order to demonstrate, you know, uh, translation. So every time we see French, we're going to read it in English, but those brackets are going to indicate it's French. It's so important when you get to the theme of communication I was talking about and how those kind of identity divides work in terms of communication or the lack thereof. So you need to be very authentic. But it's not only that, right? You also have... Um, Riel speaking in English and the way that he uses vernacular to, to um, articulate that, I think, is, is incredibly winning. Um, you know, you can really hear the kind of uh, the flavor, the patois, um, you know, the sound quality of, of his broken English. And that's so important, particularly for Riel, who seems to be a character that is very much between worlds, um, somebody that is, you know, always trying to compromise, always trying to, you know, find a voice. Um, that's essentially why he becomes the leader, right? As demonstrated by Brown, he is the only person that can communicate to them in English because he has had some education, unlike most of the other Matisse around him. So, you know, the struggle of that is something I think uh, Brown is very smart not to ignore. That's good. The other thing I thought was uh, good also speaks back to the histori historicity of the the work, and that a lot of this dialogue is is like painstakingly from historical records. The the essentially you know the long sequence of the court trials say at the uh, in the part four of the book are according to Brown note for note from the transcripts of the trial, but throughout Brown is constantly you know, um, going to the most reliable sources to articulate um, what people would have said. And even when there is not, you know, perfect, um, perfect clarity, or there might be some editing, or there might be some playing for artistic purposes, he is very quick to explain his reasoning behind it in the notes, you know. Um, even when he deviates for the purposes of entertainment or for storytelling, uh, everything in this in this book is handled with um, 
with this utmost responsibility, which I think is uh, important. I mean, the maps, you know, he puts maps in there. There's uh, all kind of, there's a, an index at the end, you know, this looks like a historical document, you know, it's, it's, um, it's charming in its way. I think it's great. Um, all right, so let's speak to Rael as a character and a subject here. I spoke a little bit about, you know, the kind of influence probably from, you know, his mother and why that's interesting. Um, also, the idea that he is, um, you know, an underdog that has these kind of libertarian qualities. But um, for me, the character was was so interesting because he is fraught with such conflict, you know. Um He's not an anarchist. I think it would be really easy to kind of place him as just, you know, a renegade. But that's not the case. He's, he doesn't really um, ever want to overthrow the government. He doesn't want to, to, to be all that disruptive. He just wants equal voice, you know, for his people. You know, the, the, the indignity that you've been on this land for generations and you not only do you have no say in where you can live, who represents you, but those decisions are being made in, by moneyed interests thousand miles away, you know, with bureaucrats who have never been to this place, who have never stepped foot on it. And you get the sense that these Matisse people just, you, you know, are, are suffering greatly because of this insult to their, to their dignity, to, you know, their dignity as Canadians. Or potential Canadians, and I feel like as much as Israel is a, you know, um, an anti-establishment figure, he's a patriot. He, he's clearly a Canadian patriot. Um, that tension is is so nuanced and beautiful, and I think uh, Brown does such a wonderful job with it. I was wondering though, so if if we're looking at kind of historical theories though. I was wondering how Brown kind of fits. It seems to some degree in the beginning to be a kind of great man theory stance. You know, this idea that only Riel, with his particular powers in this particular time, can move the course of history, can, can do something that is, is worthwhile and valuable, that uh, the context around them are less. You know, this is old... Uh, uh, Thomas Carlyle, you know, 19th century ideas, um, Napoleonic ideas of, of, of conquerors and, and, you know, geniuses. By the end of the book, I was kind of, um, I was thinking that is undercut quite a bit, you know. I think we're supposed to be very challenged by some of the ideas that, that Rail puts out, particularly as he becomes more devoted to, to his, you know, religious senses, the idea that he's a prophet, the idea that he believes wholeheartedly in what I think most people think are delusions and is uh, institutionalized for it. You know, the idea that, you know, the great man could be a flawed man, I think is a, a very interesting complication. I've never been one to subscribe to great man theory. I think that is all myth-making. Um, I, I, I'm probably in, you know, good company when it comes to kind of modern thinking on that. But I, I like... Brown's kind of play with that notion. I don't know if he's doing it explicitly, but that's how I sense the book, that he almost, this almost could be a kind of treatise on the problems of subscribing to that. You know, the, the, the problems of building up kind of uh, the worship of patriotic heroic figures, um, because it's not, 
it's not natural to human nature. Um, we are all flawed. And I think this treatment, this kind of heroic treatment of a flawed person is, is, is really beautiful. And um, I, you don't really see a lot of, you know, figures 19th century or, or before treated this way. We think of them either as villains or, or saints. Um, Rael certainly doesn't fit those categories. So, yeah, all right. Um, one last thing, and this is one last thing for real. <laughs> the depiction of the characters themselves, I think, holds some mysteries for me. This is the part where I wish I had some people to talk things through with, but that's okay. Um, his main figures seem to be inked in a way where certain features are distorted or, or pronounced that I think is, is slight, but creates this kind of like strange vibe. So particularly Louis Rail himself seems to have a small head, but a big torso and seems proportionally even bigger hands. It's not consistent. Um, it, it doesn't come through in every panel, but when it comes through, it's very prominent. Uh, McDonald, the, the, what is he, the um, prime minister, I think? Yeah, the prime minister is, uh, he has a very large nose. Now, Brown, in his notes, claims to get these images mostly from historical record, right? Uh, Rail himself, um, there's some interesting sketches of him kind of going through the process of of figuring out what he looks like in the back of uh, this edition. Rail himself seems to come from a, at least one photograph that we have of him. Um, the McDonald thing uh, seems to be from, you know, pretty reliable photographic imagery. So I was wondering why he's doing this kind of distortion. Now, one thing is that he wants these characters to stand out in some way, but I, I don't think Brown has any problems doing that. You, you know, his characters seem to work very well as distinct without these kind of distortions. So I thought it had to do maybe something with their um, personalities. Maybe it's that Rael is somebody, a, a man of action um, rather than a man of intellect. That's why his head is small and his hands are big, but that's not actually the truth either. So I don't think I have a good answer, but I think whatever the reason behind it, and it's a nice touch, it's it's a little bit mysterious and provocative, and um, I think worthwhile. Another another character that I I thought has uh, prominent features is um, is uh, Scott Thomas Scott, the uh, the man that's executed with his very long chin and jowls with the uh, the whiskers, you know, um, kind of a mutton chop, sort of thing, um, which I believe from the notes comes from a description of him, you know, so. There's a sense that Brown is, is, you know, grabbing an historical detail and almost exaggerating that historical detail. Maybe it says something about his kind of um, his kind of interaction with history in a way that I'm going to give you what the written historical record is. But even that might hold some distortions. I like that. I think I'm going to go with that. Might be a little uh, too much for people, but uh, that sounds good to me. All right. So. That's a lot of prep work before we get to the actual text, but I feel good about all of this. Um, it was, so I'm actually recording this a couple days late 
right? Uh, I usually, a little behind the scenes on Cadillacs and Noise, I usually put the podcasts up on, uh, on Fridays. That's the goal anyway. I w- and it wasn't like I had that much to do this weekend. I was so into doing research that it's not until pretty late on a Sunday afternoon that I am getting to the recording, which is um, very much unlikely. But I felt like I was down like multiple rabbit holes of Canadian history, not only surrounding Louis Riel, but just like like other Canadian artifacts and and different depictions of Louis Riel. I feel like you could dedicate you know a lifetime to just like one figure and. Uh, yeah, this book has sent me off. Like, I'm not done with Louis Riel as a as a personage. I want to see the the Canadian Opera that is is um, based on him. There's um, several other Canadian comics about the figure. Uh, yeah, I just think um, he's endlessly fascinating now that I've kind of sunk my teeth in. But all right, so from here on out, I want to go through. You know, not summarizing, but just hit some of the um, greatest hits, I think, or the most interesting aspects of each part of this text. I think I'm going to do part one and take a short break. So part one, which um, it seems is just like chocked full of information. They all are. But part one in particular seems to just be kind of cramming so much setup and context into it that it's overwhelming. I actually had to read part one twice before I even ventured into part two, which was delightful. That is not a a complaint. Uh, I think there's just so much going on. And uh, ironically, it only covers a year and a half of the total trajectory of the story, right? We start in March 1869. The hanging of of, um, Rael is uh, November 1885. So that first one and a half years just sets up so much stuff that will get played out, uh, I think, more slowly in parts one, uh, two, three, and four, particularly. But um, so what do we have here? Basically, we have the rise of Rael, you know, based on the mistreatment of the Matisse people. Um, we have the escalation of tensions between the, um, the Hudson Bay territory people trying to make a deal with the Canadian people versus the Matisse people that live in this region for, for many, many decades, which culminates in the, the, first, um, the first war of this, uh, first but not the last, uh, battle of this uh, Red River Rebellion War, and then ultimately the defeat of Louis Riel and those forces. In fact, I found it was interesting. I didn't actually even realize this until just uh, a few hours ago, that each one of these chapters actually ends in the defeat of Louis Rael to some extent. And I was wondering about, that's a very strange way to, um, to portray a hero, you know, and I think that speaks to some of those anti-heroism, anti-great men sentiments that Brown, I think, is playing with intentionally or unintentionally. Uh, you know, Certainly, you know, he is a martyr. You know, there are direct comparisons to Rael and Christ at the end of this book. Um, but it seems that, like, each chapter break is almost setting up or, or foreshadowing or creating an emphasis on that martyrdom that is um, it's kind of relentless. It's kind of grueling. Um, 
you know, he's he's somebody that, that keeps stepping up and keeps getting knocked down, which I guess speaks to his perseverance and speaks to some of his better qualities, you know, ultimately. So that's the overall sense of this. Um, but he seems to kind of like naturally fall into this leadership role. It's like um, it's like he's um, I, I don't know. It, it's it's. It's like it was it was meant to be. There seems to be a kind of sense of fate, you know, inlaid here. Uh, he ends up just kind of showing up when a conflict begins. He becomes a representative because he happens to speak the language. Well, not happens to. He was educated for it. But, um, but there was no sense that he has the ambition of, um, of the leadership that he sees himself rising to. And I thought that was interesting because it's um, uh, it, it's so I think juxtaposed against the greedy politicians in Ottawa that we get, or the the money men from uh, England and the Hudson Bay Territory Company. I'm probably not saying that right. That own you know this land. Uh, that those machinations are to be suspicious of. Where, you know, somebody that rises to the occasion because the challenge is put before them has a certain amount of uh, credibility or authenticity that is laudable, that we should be um, focused on in terms of in terms of any kind of sense of heroism that we can attribute to them. Another thing that I think is great about this text is there's so much documentation, right, that... Um, you know, we get, uh, like on page 14, we get a letter from Rael to, um, you know, the National, uh, from the National Committee of the Matisse, you know, that, that so many of these plot complications are based on bureaucracy. Um, you know, a letter from Ottawa, you know, that gets um, uh, corrupted in some way. But, but what you would think is, is typical of the, kind, the, the big Canadian machine, you know, the national interest. But the idea that Rael and the Matisse and his people, they're bureaucrats in their own right. It's not like it is completely anti-establishment. I'm, I'm being a little repetitive, but in, in this new context, that they are actually letter writers. They're drafters. Uh, this is so slight, but it kind of reminded me of the movie Old School, where um, the dean is, uh, is so put off that the, the, he can't get these guys on technicalities because they're all kind of paperwork wonks, you know. They're very good at paperwork, so all of their charters are, are you know, um, are legitimate and, and he can't get them. I almost feel like the Matisse are being, um, again, this is a very silly comparison, but are being drawn in the same way. You know, it's the idea that, uh, that you know, they, they keep being called savages, they keep being called, you know, madmen, and but they're not. They're actually, you know, just good bureaucrats. In fact, according to this text anyway, they're bureaucrats that play by the rules, unlike McDonald and the other bureaucrats, his lackeys, that are, are fraudulent, that are, you know, um, uh, doctoring letters and trying to uh, pass counterfeits. You know, there's such, I think, a, um, you know... Um, a juxtaposition between these two teams and the Matisse come off so much better. And by the way, I'm going to buy that, you know, I'm going to say, yeah, right on. I think there's enough justification and historical record that I, I don't doubt that at all. But everything that Rael does, I think, comes from a spirit of compromise. Um, and 
and equanimity. Uh, it, it's, it's playing by the rules. It's, it's doing the right thing. I think that's important. You know, another aspect of that is um, there is violence in this text, but the, violent, the, the, the national troops and the government seems to be way more apt to be violent than the Matisse do. You know, there are executions, like the execution of Thomas Scott, but that seems to be, you know, a last-ditch effort. You know, he doesn't seem... Or, or let me put it this way, Rail has exhausted all options that he sees viable in order to end the conflict. When he does that, it's not mindless. It's thought through. I don't know if I'm advocating that kind of violence, but um, it's certainly not savagery, the way that the, uh, the powers that be would like to see it. And there's several examples of that, you know, over and over again. Um, but the, the scenes of blatant government corruption uh, are, are, are really unnerving. It, it's, it's terrible. You get um, basically on page uh, 22, the, you know, the, um, the one guy that, that just changes the proclamation or, or creates a proclamation from uh, Queen Victoria that gets passed off. Matisse, uh, the Matisse, you know, aren't even sure if, if it's, real or not, and, and kind of half-heartedly protest it. But that's just blatant fraud, you know? Um, I don't think there's any way to justify that as reasonable, particularly if you are a person in powerful situation. Uh, another, you know, great example that in the first part is, um, is uh, basically the guys in Ottawa are sitting around, you know, trying to figure out how they're going to deal with the uprising. And, uh, McDonald, I think, is talking about compromise. The other guy, who I think is the Hudson Valley guy, says, as for the promises you make in the negotiations, since when does a politician have to keep his promises? Which may be a little on the nose, but um, I, I think speaks to the heart of, of this divide. You know, the Matisse come off way better. They're good underdogs. I like that. All right, a couple more things in part one. The, um, there, there are these great escapes, I think, in this text. The first one is the escape of uh, John Schultz, where his wife brings him a, um, uh, a knife that is cooked into a, an apple brown Betty, and he, uh, he uses it to construct this rope to get down. And, and um, there's another escape later where um, a guy goes to the outhouse and breaks through the other side of it. Uh, I, I think there's so much interesting kind of intrigue in, in those scenes. I mean, I'm sure they're all coming from historical record, but there's something about the way that, that Chester Brown portrays them that, I don't know, they're like my favorite parts of these things. Um, it, it's so, it's, it's almost has its own charm. I, I like particularly how, um, how John Schultz kind of uh, narrates, narrates in terms of thought bubbles, like what he's doing at every step, because it would probably be so bizarre without uh, a kind of explanation of what's going on. Um, yeah, the other one is the escape of the spy or the, the person that, um, that the, uh, the Canadians think is a spy. And, and uh, you know, that leads to other kinds of uh, turmoil. But, uh, but, yeah, I love those scenes. They, they, they're such great sequences, I think, um, in this. You know, some of this book does have does go slowly, you know, uh, you get uh, like the, the war scenes move very quickly. You get this kind of beautiful sense of action. That's what most reminds me, I think of the, uh, the Herge, you know, the, 
you know, this, this sense of, of just kind of moving through an experience. Um, but, uh, but when it's not doing that, you know, it's, it's two guys in a panel talking back and forth to each other for sometimes pages, which I think, you know, is a good thing because it highlights the action when it comes. It makes the action kind of pop, I think, in great ways. Um, so, all right, speaking of that kind of um, conflict that happens, this, I think, is the scene that really got me thinking about the nature of fate. So basically, the, the conflict for this moment anyway, had been essentially resolved. But the people that are not privy to that information don't know this and are continuing the, the fighting. So you get this guy that's taken as a spy just because he's a Matisse, even though he's probably not a spy. And he escapes because he's imprisoned um, wrongfully and probably finds that to be a problem. And because of that and him holding a gun he comes off as, um, as an enemy to, to another person. You get um, the son of this, uh, this other character. Um, oh, my God, his name is escaping me. Uh, uh, Sutherland, uh, John Sutherland's son that is killed by accident as he's going to deliver the message about the compromise that has been made. And, and you get this escalation that seems to be the hand of fate. Right? It seems that no matter what you are, um, you are going to do bureaucratically in terms of compromise, that that is not something that is 100% guaranteed or sustainable. That you know, the kind of the whims of violent men, whatever that impulse comes from, is a more powerful force than the, uh, the compromising of gentlemen and democracy. That's striking and, and you know, and, and I, I would hope that the world didn't work like that. But I, I think it's compelling how Brown tells the story. By the way, I don't know, you know, I'm not going to go through every panel and discuss whether this is historically accurate or not. Brown has done that himself in his index. Um, I'm going to, for the most part here, take for granted that this is the story being told, which is a leap of faith we always have to do with history, you know, and this book and this experience has kind of um, solidified, I think, more in my mind, something I've always suspected that, you know, all history to a certain extent is mythos, you know, not completely. But once, you know, the, the problems of memory, the problems of documentation, the problems of our egos get in the way of telling the stories of our past, it, it's, it's, more, it's more connected to, um, to a fiction than a nonfiction, you know. I guess I'm ultimately questioning the nature of nonfiction. So to a certain extent, I guess I'm arguing that Brown's rendition here is as valuable as any other rendition, you know, particularly in a figure like Rael that's 150 years almost, you know, removed from us, you know, that even, even Brown's historical records hold some kind of tall tale idealism in them or damning qualities in them. That um, So for the sake of this, I'm going to go with this being the historical record. And if that's the case, it's not as solid as we would like to think it is. On 54, and at the tail end of this conflict, we get the, um, the introduction of Thomas Scott, who plays a huge part, it seems, not only in the, uh, the arc of this story of the, uh, the Red River Rebellion, 
but also historically he seemed to be his own kind of martyr figure that generated, you know, some of the upheaval or the justification for the violence from the point of view of the Canadians. Um, his, you know, his martyrdom seems to be the end result of this kind of whim of fate. However, Brown portrays him as this brutal monster as well. Both can be true. You know, you could have this guy that is literally decapitating, you know, this innocent man with an axe because of his own sense of vengeance. He did, he, he is connected to somebody that died earlier and therefore, you know, has some kind of um, personal vendetta that may or may not justify his, his anger. But uh, he really comes off badly throughout this whole text. He comes off, you know, almost as this, um, this sociopath that really can't be controlled. But um, it wouldn't even have to be an, an issue if, you know, the wires weren't, weren't crossed in this, um, this just kind of tanglement of events that uh, is portrayed so beautifully here. Um, okay, so leading up to his execution, you know, you get these, uh, this very interesting arc in the end of part two where these retreating uh, forces end up almost on a whim being taken prisoner by the Matisse in this fort. And you get these uh, great panels of Scott imprisoned and he's, he's petulant and he is um, absurdly angry. The, the, these great um, speech bubbles where they're just a series of X's as he, um, he curses um, his captors. You know, it seems to be using a lot of racial epithets. Um, you know, as it goes on, it gets a little more specific, but to the point where even the uh, his fellow prisoners um, demand that he be put in a different cell because he is so unsavory. Uh, I love this characterization. He is, you know, as as grotesque as the man is, he's one of the best characters in this book. And the drawings, his elongated mouth with those jowls, I think are so perfect. God, I, I love this portrayal. Um, but... Um, Ultimately, it's going to be, you know, his own actions and his own anger that is going to be his undoing. Uh, it turns out he tries to escape later. And um, because of circumstances, because of Rael's um, need to kind of control the situation, he is executed. And what I think is, is a, you know, pretty, um, you know, harrowing portrayal. You know, on page uh, 72, you have... You know, him kneeling down, then this blank panel that seems to be a gunshot, and then the, the man dead and moaning. Um, it, it's, it's, it's rough, you know? Even um, if we can justify the killing of Thomas Scott, it is done with this, this brutality, this kind of grueling um, uh, violence that uh, makes us rethink the decision overall. It's it's um, it's tough. There's um, there's a couple very interesting things I think uh, laid into this um, battle though, on uh, or or this this kind of back and forth on sixty four. There's uh, two panels of flags, and this is the flag of the Matisse people flying over uh, uh, Scott's rants about them and how terrible their race is and all of these things. And the note in um, at the end of this book by Brown I found absolutely fascinating 
The flags feature the fleur-de-lis, which makes complete sense because the Matisse peop- people are be- going to be connected to the, um, the Quebec people, which are French speakers. So they're going to uh, naturally, you know, have sympathies there. And the fleur-de-lis is the, essentially the symbol of, of Quebec identity. So that makes sense that the Matisse would take it on. The Irish shamrock, though, is, is so interesting. Um, apparently, there were these Fenian movements that were anti-Canadian because of the Canadian ties to the British, and, which go back to you know the British Isles and the Irish hating the British for their oppression. And the idea that you could get these kind of uh, conglomerations of allies that I would never put together are so interesting. There's some historical note about... Um, about these Fenian, these uh, yeah, these Fenian people in like um, North Dakota and uh, Minnesota, you know, that were um, uh, gaining armaments to to fight the, uh, the the Canadian British from their end. So um, yeah, I, I just think like these um, these geographical complications of identity and and ancient grudges are so so fascinating to me. Um, Anyway, the um, oh, one more thing I wanted to say about that was um, th- there's a question that I was actually having throughout reading the text. And, you know, I read the text through and then went back to the notes afterwards and Brown answers it. And the question was, why isn't uh, Rail just interested in going with the Americans? You know, it seems that the Americans at this point, this is the, you know, uh, manifest destiny city, you know, why wouldn't, you know, Grant want to, I think it's granted this time, um, want to team up with him and, and take over this area? Why wouldn't Rail encourage that? And it really had to do with his own sense of patriotism and loyalty to the Quebec people. You know, the idea that, he, and he's probably right, if he had gone with the American forces, then French as a kind of national language and identity marker would really be kind of consumed by American culture. I mean, I, I guess as as early as the late 19th century, you know, there's a, a kind of, you know, cultural imperialism that um, American influence is, uh, is, is putting out there in North America anyway, which I thought was interesting too. So in, in a strange way, Rael's, you know, fight with the Canadian central government is a patriotic act that means to keep them together, you know, uh, where they're framing it as violence. There's such kind of, um, kind of horrifying ironies that kind of, uh, underlie all of this. Uh, at the end of this text, we also get the introduction of, uh, Dumont, who's probably the, the most interesting and noble character in the whole book. Um, you know, as this kind of like um, mountain man figure in his own right, he strikes me as really the stuff of legend with his um, his kind of uh, uh, his animal skin coat and his um, you know his proclivity to to violence and aggression. Uh, he he seems like a kind of Daniel Boone you know figure, um, and he's really interesting. And I think the relationship between Rael and Dumont is um, incredibly rich as we get to chapter three of this text. We'll get back to that a little later. Um, so the last thing that we get here is basically Rael losing this standoff 
because of being outmanned by the Canadian forces that are coming in to take over the fort. Rail orders, you know, the rest of his men away and then waits for it seems to be a night before he leaves himself. And that's the last thing we get in chapter one. I was wondering why that's the case, right? Why is it that he just doesn't lead with his men, lead them away? And the text doesn't answer that. And I, I appreciate that, you know, um, there's several times where Rail runs away. He's not somebody that seems to be typically, quote-unquote, heroic in the ideas of, you know, going down with the ship, of, of standing up and being a symbol. You know, he is somebody very human that fears death and wants to continue leading. So I, I was wondering, I had a couple ideas. Is it just that he is frozen with fear, you know, doesn't really know what to do, is maybe in a state of confusion? That seems unlikely. Um is this maybe a sense of the early onset of his mental illness? You know, take it for granted, it is mental illness. I'm trying to be uh, sensitive to Brown's point of view on mental illness, which I think is, is very compassionate and right-minded. But taking for granted that mental illness is a thing, is this that kind of early onset? Um, there doesn't seem to be evidence from Brown's part that this is the case. In fact, we don't really see a sense of that until... I, a very specific panel in part two. So that doesn't seem likely either. Um, Brown actually does talk about the historicism of this event. He says that it actually wasn't him alone. He did send most of the Matisse away and then stayed with um, a small group and they left. But his portrayal here needs to say something. And I don't know, I, I think it has to do with simply changing his mind, simply um, thinking himself maybe a martyr and going through that process and then rethinking it, you know, having a change of heart, seeing it kind of thought through logically and seeing how nonsensical that would be or, you know, what it would mean to actually be prisoner or to be executed, um, being more of a problem for the movement. Whatever it is, you know, this is more, I think, of Brown's kind of anti-heroic sentiments. I mean that in the best possible way. You know, the idea that a hero is not this you know, simply one thing that is um, monolithic, that is reliable, that underneath any kind of heroic action is doubt, is humanity, um, self-preservation. I don't think, you know, anybody that, that really thinks it through can fault somebody for wanting to live. So with that, I'm going to take a bit of a break. It's been an hour. I'm going to walk the dogs, and um, I'll come back and do the rest. Part two covers September 1870 to late 1876. So this chapter, um, I think the first, say, three quarters of it are pretty similar to chapter one. It just kind of covers, um, you know, the aftermath of the war events and what was happening there. You get, um, you get Rael out of, in exile and coming back out for different reasons. He kind of bops him back and forth. Um, and, and that's all very interesting. I think um, what makes Chapter 2 special, though, is the end with the um, religious uh, experience he has, whether you want to call it a delusion or whether you want to call it a, um, you know, uh, being touched by uh, the mysteries of God, whatever that you think. 
Um, it is quite striking when you get it in, in visual form. So the first time we get it is 101, after he's, um, he's in Ottawa, I believe. He is um, uh, deciding whether or not he's going to take a seat on Parliament. Ultimately, he turns back because there is a warrant on his life. So he goes and he visits a, a bishop. I think it's a Catholic bishop and receives a blessing from that bishop. On the top of 101, you get him walking out, I guess, of the hospital and having this kind of sensation. It's depicted by Rael, um, almost hallowed by this kind of fire, this glow that is, um, that is coming from his head. And it's unlike anything we've seen in this text yet. So this is what I was referring to before when I was talking about a kind of fantasy realm that is being depicted. With the kind of scientific objective sensibility that Brown uses, you get this kind of um, strange effect where I think um, we're supposed to take for granted the subjective sense that this is happening. I feel like, you know, playing off of my mother was a schizophrenic, we're supposed to see this as, as true or as, you know, capital R real as anything that we experience empirically in our lives. It's just that it's only real to him. And I think Brown, again, makes the argument that that should not be cheapened or lessened because it is not a collective experience. That goes away for a little while and then reappears in a big way after we get Rails um, meeting with uh, President Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, talking about possibilities of, of uh, using, I think it's... Um, U.S. Railway, I can't remember exactly. It's not that important. <laughs> um, but after that, we get um, Rail going to the top of a mountain in Washington, D.C. and getting this incredible experience. It's almost like a, a Moses-like conversion experience, it seems. You get these pictures on 106 of him climbing the mountain and standing on top. He kneels and prays, and then in the next frame, the flames kind of rise around him. Um, it is, it's very similar to like a burning bush kind of imagery and it eventually raises him up into the air. You get this planetary imagery and you get this, um, absolutely, um, uh, hallucinatory effect, uh, in my mother was a schizophrenic, uh, I believe Brown, if I recall correctly, talks about, uh, psychedelic drugs and how, you know, people seek out what uh, schizophrenics actually experience normally and how that is evidence to it being, quote unquote, normalized. And I mean, what we're seeing here does look incredible, you know, it, I mean, by the literal word incredible, like you cannot believe what is happening. And that kind of um, experience, I think, um, is what Brown would argue is the, you know, the greatness of life. Um you know, seeing the unimaginable. So it's strange. Uh, I mean, I, somebody that is not very religious, not very into uh, mysticism, um, can see the value in it. Um, but what I think is really striking is that, that we need to see this event as legitimate through the eyes of Brown, um, which is, is kind, I think, ultimately. You know, it, it, takes, a, um, it takes a bold point of view on on uh, rail that I don't think um, people 
at the time, or even now, typically do. Uh, another interesting aspect of this is the original cover of the artwork. I, I read this somewhere. It might have been, it might have been the um, the essay at the back of the book, but the original article, um, the original uh, cover art was Rael on the top of the mountain. Clearly, this moment, which is you know, I think a, a pinnacle moment um, in the text, but none of the mysticism is happening. He's just kind of uh, leaning down. And you get the sense that that could either be the moments right before the actual mystical experience, um, which would be in keeping with with the story, or it could be an objective look at this experience, you know, maybe the other side of it, the idea that it is all happening in his head. I don't think that cheapens the um, reality of it for Riel, but uh, I like the idea of having multiple perspectives which we've seen before. I mean, um, Ed the Happy Clown was loaded with those scenes where you see it from one perspective, then another. And I, I like when Brown is always kind of challenging the authority of any one point of view. I think it's very, very smart. Chapter two um, then moves right into um, Rael being institutionalized. So this is pretty, um, you know, pretty grave stuff here. Uh, his name is changed. They call him David. That's interesting because, you know, David is such a loaded name, you know, being a prophet of God in its own right, you know, Old Testament, but still. the um, But he almost rejects it, right? They're calling him David so that uh, he will be undiscovered by authorities because he's wanted. But he asserts his name. No, um, my name is Louis Rael. And... Um, and, and clutches his prayer book. And when the, uh, the old nurse, that's kind of skeletal in nature, rips the prayer book out, he becomes distraught. So you get this kind of like fierce fighting for identity, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, eventually he is imprisoned naked in a chamber. There's this long sequence between 101 and it goes all the way through to 114 of just the door cell of the prison. Um, with Rael slowly, um, first he is, he is screaming out, you know, and, and protesting. Then he just is, uh, you see his arm silently, and then you see nothing uh, giving the impression that he is retreating into himself. And uh, it's very, very solemn and sad at the end of this chapter. Again, another defeat of Rael. Uh, I couldn't help but think that this is a nice parallel to the same shots we saw of Thomas Scott at the end of chapter one. And I think we're supposed to draw that comparison. You know, the idea that um, Rael, who was the dominant figure at that time, um, you know, put, put Scott in this place of submission and that he suffers the same indignities. Uh, clearly, you know, Scott is a different case this is not politically punitive in the way that the Scott trial was. Um, I don't think uh, Rail is belligerent to the way Scott was. But there is a sense that uh, the fates can do this to us. And again, I'll go back to that theme that I love in this text, the idea that the turns of fate, for whatever reason, are more powerful than the acts of man, you know, kind of playing on that uh, great man theory concept that I was uh, discussing before. 
So that's about the halfway point, and then we get the uh, second map section. I guess I didn't talk about the maps before. I love maps, and I think I learned as much about the uh, story of the Matisse and the, the settling of this area from Brown's maps as I did from the story itself. Um, you know, the geography tells such a uh, uh, an interesting story, um, not just about Canada, but about, you know, U.S. as well. I was applying a lot of these ideas to what ex U.S. expansion and Manifest Destiny ideas must have been like, um, it's very interesting. And I, and I would not have thought that the United States plays such a role in this text. In fact, as we go into chapter three, you know, we get Rael years later, I think, um, yeah, several years later, um, uh, he has settled into uh, life in Mont Montana with um, a wife and children and seems to have lived a completely different life outside of these Canadian politics. And that's when we catch up with him. Uh, you know, the, that, that kind of um, interaction between uh, the two countries, you know, that are, I think, still loosely defined is, is very interesting and compelling. Um, so there, there's two kind of parallel stories that, that organize chapter three. And that is, you know, Rael's personal life and his return to a kind of leadership in Canada. And you also get the intrigue of McDonald, who seems to have not been prime minister, but is now returned to prime minister. And his new financial complications with the international railroad system. Um, so we have kind of moved from one major corporation, the Hudson, you know, um, the Hudson Territory people, to the railroads, but again, another bureaucracy that is challenging the rights of the Matisse who have been on the land. So it's the same kind of theme, uh, just a different master, just a different um, face that needs to be conquered. And, and I think that in its own right says so much that, uh, you know, the underdog always has a new challenge. You know, even if you win certain kind of rights in this battle, unless you have a systematic change, you know, who knows who the the enemy is going to be down the line? It's uh, it's it's pretty tough to take. One one of my favorite things in this book is on page one twenty two, where you get the kind of final straw for this new round of of problems for the Matisse people in the uh, Red River area. And it's because of the, um, the drawing of land plots. Now, it seems they've gotten some rights. They will get some land. But a new complication happens when, you know, they, they change the nature of the land plotting. They, they move from this kind of, um, this kind of striped um, land plot where people have very thin uh, and shallow uh, land chunks versus um, perfectly square plots. Now, the people themselves have organized in these long, thin areas so that they can all have access to the river, and it forms this kind of beautiful equality. At first looking at it, I, I was like, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? And then it makes complete sense when you hear the, um, the rationale of the people that organize it according to a sense of cooperation and justice, as opposed to the bureaucrats that are just doing the easiest method, the most, the most um, a patchwork method without really considering the land itself. It, it, it's such a move for somebody that doesn't live on the land and have to um, experience what the land 
offers and, and live according to those tenets, it's, I don't know, I think it's, it's a perfect metaphor for this theme of large bureaucracies and how they function kind of deaf to the needs of the people. So I was wondering about McDonald, though, you know, who seems to be the kind of mastermind behind, you know, the problems that these people have to suffer. And Brown even makes an argument in the notes that, in retrospect, he actually looked more kindly upon McDonald's. Not that he ever thought that McDonald's was, um, you know, righteous or believed in his politics, but that he was at least doing what he believed to be the right thing, that, you know, he wasn't necessarily all about the money grab or self-interest, that his ideas about progress just differed. And first off, I think that's very kind and, and thoughtful for Brown. So few people, I think, really give the opposition that much credit, which I think is, um, is, is bold. But there is... Um, it got me thinking about, you know, progress in general and, and how it's almost a necessary function to, well, I don't know if I believe this, but, but the point of view that it's a necessary function to, to sometimes do wrong in order to meet the needs of the greater good. There's something too utilitarian about that, 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 you know, makes me uncomfortable. But I, I think that is more the story of history than I'd like to believe. Uh, if, you know, the, the Matisse people are, are not, you know, challenged in this way. Is something like an international railroad possible? Can you really, you know, create... I, see, they keep claiming that they're creating civilization, um, which I think is too strong because I believe the Matisse people had civilization according to this document, you know? It's just not the civilization that they had control of. But there is something to that argument, I think, at core that I, I grudgingly agree with that the more resources we can share as a large entity, the better off we are, perhaps. I tend to be, I think, a little more like Brown in terms of social libertarianism, not that I would claim to be a libertarian by today's standards, but the idea of small government and living, having to, to govern based on the experience that you have to live by seems to be more natural and humanistic than the large faceless bureaucracies. It's tough. Um, I, I think maybe you could say that uh, it was a little more cut and dry 150 years ago, but who knows what that means in terms of human progress if, if we don't kind of uh, cooperate on that large scale. I'm not sure. Um, so moving along, you get some more mysticism as you go deeper into the text. You get the, um, the kind of fanaticism, a religious fanaticism of Rail uh, taking over. And there's a, a kind of um, question arises between Rail and Dumont, which I think is interesting as we kind of enter in the, uh, the several battles that end this chapter. And you get the sense that Dumont is always going to acquiesce to, the, to what he thinks is the great leader in Rael. But I think as a reader, we're supposed to question that leadership. Rael seems to almost lead with his you know, sense of mysticism and keep saying that God, you know, things like God will provide and, 
and making erratic decisions, it seems that Brown or the historical record is putting out the idea that had they just gone with a kind of Dumontian guerrilla warfare, they probably would have, uh, they would have fended much better for themselves. So again, this is a little more of that kind of flawed sensibility of Rael as hero, which I think is, is um, probably a, a justified argument. You get him breathing on, on his people, you know, breathing the Holy Spirit into him, you know, similarly to how the Pope blessed him in the uh, hospital room earlier in the text. You get later um, Dumont coming upon him um, to get advice or give back um, information so that they can strategize. And he's, he's doing this Christ-like pose as he prays, which seems to be a, kind of some strange self-flagellation. Uh, you get a sense that you know, whether or not the delusional world that he inhabits is correct, it is not boding well for his kind of military standing, that he has lost sight of what it means to, to be, uh, you know, a, a practical, logical leader. On 153, uh, I'm sorry, 143, right before you get that, you get, um, you get a statement by him that uh, Rome has fallen, uh, you know, and he slaps the priest away that is seeming to stand in his way and declares himself, I guess, leader of his own church. It seems that that soon after was kind of, um, was, uh, was changed and he went back to the authority of the Catholic Church. But you get this kind of delusional grandiosity, uh, you know, the idea that, that he keeps calling himself a prophet. Uh, I, I, you know, look, again, whether or not, you know, I believe that uh, mental illness exists. I, I think you know leading using that kind of um, that that kind of egocentric point of view is going to be dangerous. Whether you're leading a war for independence or whether you're uh, you're leading a book club, there doesn't seem to be it doesn't seem to bode with the tenets of democracy and equality that he started this project with. And I think that's part of the point, you know. Um, that it's so easily to fall into your own brands of tyranny if given um, carte blanche, if not tempered by the context around you. That ultimately can be, you know, the, uh, I guess, the, uh, the bad face of, of, of buying into the, the great man of history theory, that people change, that um, even if you are a great man tomorrow, you could be a delusional man the next day, and that kind of shift might be the downfall for everybody. It's uh, that, That's why I love this book. I, I think the character is so complex. I think these ideas are so challenging. As I was walking my dogs <laughs> just in the moment, I, I, I was just thinking about where this kind of fits in. And, and I never thought that this book would be as high in my estimation as Ed or paying for it. But I, I, I think it, it is. I think it's um, certainly better than Ed. And, uh, you know, neck and neck with paying for it in terms of the great brown works. Uh, I'm, I'm so taken with this. It's, uh, it's pretty good. So the, the end or the last half of chapter three are these series of battles. And I made the point before, but they're masterfully done. I just randomly turned to the spread on 150 and 151. And you get this um, Dumont going head to head with the, uh, the leader of this, this Canadian brigade. And... 
just as they they do kind of hand-to-hand back, uh, combat with their guns, it, there's so much kind of um, kind of fluid moment movement in their actions. Uh, uh, but while maintaining this kind of cartoonish quality that I think is is really compelling. Um, but but this whole section of of the war, I think, is really great. You know, you get the sense of not only you know the geography of the battles and and the stakes involved for each group, but you get these individual portraits of people's you know courageous and sometimes cowardly actions. Dumont, who seems to get shot but only grazed and and injured, you know, becomes this harrowing figure. And um, there's this great sequence where they end up being surrounded in a ditch while the, um, the, the Canadian soldiers have them outmanned and uh, from a high point and they're just firing down randomly into the trees where they're hiding out and uh, killing their horses. And, and you really get a sense of the stakes. That, that's unbelievable. Um, it's right after that, actually, that uh, we, we get, you know, Rael apart doing his kind of crucified self-flagellation. And he seems so distant from the action. It seems like he is becoming removed from the fight in every sense, uh, that, that he's kind of folding into himself and, and not really thinking about, you know, the actual men that are, are losing their lives or potentially losing their lives. Uh, yeah, all of these are great. And, and we end the chapter with this, uh, with Rael fleeing, you know, again, moving into the woods, having no other recourse, and essentially being met by Dumont and the two men, you know, um, kind of talk through their options. And, you know, basically, Dumont seems to convince Rael that he has to be careful and maybe even flee. Rael has enough wherewithal to understand that um, that his status is more important um, alive, that, that having been killed by the Canadian forces will make him a martyr. He's still politically thinking, but but somewhat lost. You know, that, that kind of tension in the character, uh, again, is so compelling. Uh, it's very interesting. Uh, but again, defeat. Again, you know... Um, we're 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 on our our kind of last legs and we don't get the action that takes place between the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four it's only a a month difference but it seems that rail is taken into custody by the canadian forces and put on trial so the final chapter chapter four which I think in a lot of ways is complete opposite to chapter one, where chapter one like packs in information. Chapter four is slow and far more considered. Um, I think if we were being uh, not generous, we would say it's tedious, but I think it is maybe as compelling as anything else in the book. Uh, but basically we get uh, the court exchange in the first half and the circumstances of his final day in the hanging in the second half, the there's a couple of very striking things I think about the 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 trial. First off, there is this. All of it is done in profile with a black background. So the black background is interesting. It's it's the sense that 
there is nothing but the trial going on. There's no context. You don't see a courtroom behind. You don't see a jury box. You only see the figure that is talking in each panel. And you get this back and forth. Where they are facing depends on whether or not you are a litigator or you are being questioned. And at first, you know, uh, the first couple pages, it's arranged such that they look like they're facing each other. But then as you go, they face away from each other. Um, and, and you get this kind of disorienting sense, disorienting sense. And I think that's interesting because uh, it, it helped me maybe think about the complications of the trial and what it must be like for Rael to, to follow along. Um, Brown is, again, not interested with our aesthetic needs over the kind of truth over finding out what history demands. And the dialogue seems to be taken directly from the court records, which I think I stated before. But that's huge, you know. Um, but no context. This is, this is the, the raw material that is going to tell the story. This is the most, I think, historically sensitive of all the chapters. It seems to be the most accurate. The other thing that's interesting is that profile. You know, the characters only face each other. They never face us. You never get a, a head-on view. And I was wondering why, and it struck me just recently that I think it's because we're the jury, that this is about them facing each other in terms of the law, the truth, um, and, and we are kind of the silent witnesses. That's why we don't see the jury either. We stand in that realm. And hearing the truth, we have to come to our own, I think, uh, difficult decisions about not only... Louis Rael and his ability to rule, you know, his people and his ability to, to, to challenge, you know, the larger authority that exists. But these big themes that I've been talking about, you know, um, in a sense, what a jury comes down on, comes down to is, you know, a whim of fate, or we try and organize it to be logical and to be just. But when you are sitting in that courtroom and your life is literally on the line, I think it might as well be a whim of fate before you. It's, um, it's extremely well done. You can feel the tension, even though the language is so, you know, just technical and so, so without emotion, for the most part. There are a couple scenes where, where Rael tries to kind of plea for himself, and it does get a little more heightened, but uh, for the most part, it is uh, basically... Very raw and stark, I think. It's, uh, it's great. The law speaks more than the individual here, which I think is uh, very thematically compelling. There's this brief um, interlude before we actually get to Rael and his last day and night. Um, and it's McDonald's. Uh, it's only a couple panels. And talking about how he has tried to reverse the verdict that Rael will be put to death. Uh, apparently, according to Brown's notes, the jury only took an hour and a half, I think he said, to to deliberate in order to come to that conclusion. It seems pretty cut and dry. But um, that McDonald, the great enemy that w- wanted nothing more than Rael to be uh, out of his uh, out of his way, now wants him to to be saved. I think for the reason Rael speaks of at the end of chapter three, that um, he will become a martyr and probably more important to their cause dead than he would be alive. I don't think this means uh, McDonald is uh, being generous, being, 
being more thoughtful or changing his opinion about Rael. He knows that he has to rule Montreal and that 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 whole province is very sympathetic to the Matisse people, of which Rael is central. So the last um, few pages are the discussion with Rael, mostly with the priest, um, the climbing the stairs and, and going out to the external gallows that has been set up, and the killing of Rael. It is, um, it's tough to take, and you see one of the few uh, emotive gestures here by a character, and it's the priest who, who sniffles and, and cries out upon the death of Rael. You also get, juxtaposed against that, the hangman, who is apparently one of the men taken prisoner by the Matisse earlier in the text, dramatized in chapter one of this work, who says something uh, nasty. He says, Louis Rael, uh, I was one of your prisoners at Fort Garry in 1870. Uh, you had me then, and I got away from you. I have you now, and you'll not get away from me. And then he walks away. The notes actually say that he wept after this happens, which is, uh, which is strange. But the, the idea that uh, Rael stands with one man that is completely distraught by his death and another man that seems to be vengeful and gleeful, I think is a, is a nice way to end this text uh, the text proper, there is an epilogue, but I'll get to that in a minute, but end the text proper, not just with his death, but with the kind of torn sentiments that surrounds Rael as a man and, and surround the politics of Canada at the time, that even though this man will die, which is certainly a tragedy, it doesn't end the strife, it doesn't, it doesn't resolve anything, you know? I, I think this death, and certainly the man who was, you know, most likely a friend of Thomas Scott, um, makes you rethink that execution, even though Rael, you know, seemed to have the best intentions for his people by carrying out that execution. Um, Rael kind of walks in the footsteps of Scott, and you wonder if it's all worth it, or what this kind of war and conflict do to us as humans. I think it gets pretty lofty um, at the end, but it's done wonderfully. The actual death being portrayed on the last page. I'm on 238 with Rael hooded. Uh, we don't see his face. His last words, courage, father. And then the, the, uh, the trap door going with the first, the, um, the rope kind of swinging as his neck snaps and then going taut with the weight of his body. And then nothing. This, uh, I said earlier that all the uh, pages had six panels. I was, that's actually not true. <laughs> it strikes me now that the last page has five panels. We're left with a space at the end. That's pretty, pretty good. So is that the case that the story is over? And because it ends here, it ends here. And that has more to say with the ideas of, of history being told in its own time. Or is it the case that there is... That blankness is the, the life of Rael ending, and there is no story from his perspective to be told anymore. That's, uh, that's pretty good. Chester Brown's pretty good, I would think. But the idea that he is, his face is covered, I think, is, uh, has something to say in its own right. You know, that theme that I talked about earlier of identity and who you are and whether you're a Matisse or a Canadian or you speak French or you speak English or you're a Protestant or a Catholic, when the hood is over your face, it doesn't matter anymore uh, to a certain degree to the, to the onlooking public. 
you're anonymous. Um, yeah, yeah, wow. So the epilogue is just your basic, um, hey, what happened to these guys? It's five panels. Oh, interestingly, uh, yeah, it is only five panels. Two panels at the top, the first one being what happens to the Matisse people, um, and their kind of further uh, relations with the Canadians, the amnesty that follows. Um, it seems that eventually they're just kind of assumed by the idea of having this new, I think it's fifth province in Canada. Um, it seems that they have certain rights, maybe not as as much as Rail would have hoped for, but I think we're supposed to believe that Rail's uh, presence and legacy certainly was not in vain that these people were spoken for. Uh, Gabriel Dumont gets the second panel, you know, um, stories of him being a, this kind of folk hero, um, kind of hanging out with uh, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show and uh, living a pretty, uh, a pretty long life. And uh, I think he comes across as a more traditional hero, less problematic, you know, at least in terms of this text. Uh, he seems to have been universally liked in a way that Rael wasn't. It's an interesting foil. The middle section is interesting. This is actually the only panel, I think, in the whole book, besides maybe the maps, that is not aligned and perfectly shaped with the other ones. This takes up the whole middle section, and it's a picture of his wife by gas lamp in, it looks like, her bedroom. And this one talks about uh, the wife and the children that Rael left behind. There isn't much of it in the text, and I don't think we have a ton of historical documentation on this, but Brown gives us, between this panel and the notes, everything that we have, and it seems that... Um, you know, as much as it was a tragic event and these, uh, this family did lose a, uh, a father that they, they mostly went on to different levels of success. The last two panels are the bureaucrats. You know, you get McDonald and you get the leader of the railroad company. And it basically talks about McDonald, you know, dying of old age, 76, certainly old age up for the time, and talks about their... Um, the idea of, um, you know, generally his, his reign and his influence as prime minister. The, the thing that strikes me, though, is there is a shadowy quality to the fifth panel here, or actually the fourth panel, into the fifth panel, where you get the, the bigger shadow of him, which I think is supposed to be kind of ominous and supposed to say something about his kind of grasp on history. I think even though Brown is kind of calm, you know, kind to him, eventually, in terms of his legacy, that shadow that looms um, might be a kind of counter-argument. And it actually looms bigger in the next panel. But how this ends is a little disconcerting. I, I mean, I think very smart. I don't think it's a, it's a bad choice. But we actually get this, the story of the, the railroad um, magnet, which is uh, George Stevens, became one of the wealthiest men in the world, it says. He died at 92 uh, in 1921, you know, ultimately he gets the last word, the railroad and his wealth. Um, you know, he's a character that I, I think we, we just saw glimpses of through this text. Uh, we, we get, um, McDonald kind of, uh, making a deal with him, you know, during, um, you know, one of his more sinister moments. I think that's in chapter three. 
And he, uh, he doesn't have a huge presence in the book, but his voice is the loudest, that moneyed interest. Um, I think we're supposed to take away from this that, um, that the big conglomerates, you know, are the ones that are going to have the largest say. You know, we are in, I, from an American history point of view, this is the, the era of the uh, robber barons and the Gilded Age and the uh, Rockefellers and the Carnegies, the people that, uh, quote unquote, built America using their corporate might. I think that this is one of those guys. And I think um, Brown's mixed on it. I think I'm mixed on it. You know, um, to one degree, you know, the, the heft of their voices drowned out the multitudes, you know, the people like the Matisse that Rail was fighting for. I can't help but be honest and say that I don't know if you could get the progress you got, for better or worse, if that wasn't the case. It's very mixed, and I wonder about Brown's libertarianism here and whether he, uh, he's not torn as well, whether he doesn't see that kind of um, new form of great man that is certainly, with, with quotes around it, uh, being the, uh, the kind of mover, the Hegelian kind of uh, catalyst of a new era that, that brings us to the 20th century. I'm going to be thinking about this book for... Um, for quite a while. I, I think it's, uh, it, it's quite stunning and it's certainly something I'm going to return to. The end notes are brilliant and um, you know so much interest in terms of not only uh, some of the covers used in the individual serialized works when this was put out, um, but also he has these mock covers he drew up. Each one of them has their own interests uh, underlying them. I, I think it's, uh, it's certainly great stuff. Um, there's there's two, no, no, I think there, there's one original comic in here. There's a couple of things that are, you know, old works that are redrawn uh, for the final edition. And that's interesting in terms of a, a technical, um, you know, growth standpoint. But the, uh, the thing that's very, very striking to me is this uh, kind of standalone comic that I think... Um, Brown said he wrote as kind of a teaser for the book coming out, and it's called, uh, it's two pages, and it's called Why Louis Riel's Parents Got Married. And it's basically a portrait of his mother praying about uh, his, um, whether or not he should marry, she should marry Riel's eventual father, and saying that her parents want her to, but she doesn't want to, and... As she leaves the church, she is kind of caught in a circle of flame, not unlike what we see uh, Louis Rael, um caught on the mountain in Washington, and a vision who seems to be God, a very traditional vision of a white-bearded God, um, says to her, disobedient child, you will comply with your parents' wishes, and she runs off eventually to go on and marry Riel's father and have Riel. So that, I think, is interesting, too. Um, you know, for the kind of backstory, uh, apparently that comes from one of the biographical sources that Brown used. It's not, um, you know, fiction. It's, it's something that is recounted in the historical record. But what strikes me as interesting is the almost kind of um, nature versus nurture debate that it brings up. Uh, am I to believe that... Um, that this is either, I don't know, 
this this kind of quote unquote delusion is part of the natural world, and there is something special about these people that they are um, being kind of uh, kind of sought out to be prophets of this this new idea that needs to be um, put forth. Uh, it, it's very much like the uh, the Annunciation upon Mary, and you get a lot of that that specific imagery, I think, kind of being played in here. So I think that argument would say that, uh, that the, you know, you believe the mysticism, and um, I have troubles with that. There, there's a kind of nurture argument here that I think brings us back to my mother was a, my mom was a schizophrenic, you know, which is, you know, kind of similarly titled to why Louis Rail's parents got married, you know, with the actual specific address of the parent in the title. And it's the idea of, you know, are the um, quote-unquote delusions of the mother kind of uh, genetic and carried upon to Louis himself? I don't think there's going to be an answer, but I think it's uh, kind of a provocative way to slightly address how not only history, but our identities unfold before us. So... I, again, strongly recommend this book. It's among the best comic works that I have ever read. So that's about it. I'm going to be talking about Paying For It soon, which I think is likewise an absolute masterpiece. And um, I'll uh, see you then. We are good time.